This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. Some serial killers are just so likable, aren't they? Maybe likable is the wrong word. Interesting, charming, deceptive. Yeah, deceptive truly is the word. Ted Bundy in court, flashing a smile for the cameras. He's striking, disarming. And really, that should come as no surprise. His charm was his sharpest tool, after all. Eileen Warnos, despite all of the overt madness, had a warmth to her, like a nutty ant. Crazy, no doubt about that, but again, compelling. A sense of substance about her. When she spoke, it pinned people. BTK. Now I'm often alone on this, but I find Dennis to be charming, affable. A false humility, a false everything about him, but still, he draws me in. That darkness in his eyes betrays his facade, and it's as if Dennis is a willing captive. Just something dark and supernatural. Jeffrey Dahmer, like a remorseful drunk with his hat in his hand the next morning. Or your head in his hand. Gacy seemed a jolly sort, the type of guy you'd have a beer or three with. Spellbound by his hospitality until bound for a spell. Before being raped to death. Richard Ramirez and that indignant attitude that pure acceptance of what he was, that unapologetic disdain for everything, like a living demon. How do you look away from that? How do you look away from pure evil? The list is long, and if I missed your favorite serial killer, I'm not sorry, because it's ridiculous, it's foolish, it's dumb to have a favorite serial killer. I think what we should be saying is most fascinating, rather than favorite. See Bundy in the woods, raping your mother's putrefied corpse, touching up her lipstick. Dahmer with the drill, boring a hole in your brother's head. Warnos, laying a trap for Uncle Bob, killing the lonely soul for 60 bucks. Ramirez, crawling through Grandma's living room window. BTK, making a BLT after doing BTK stuff. You get the picture. They fooled us. We're all victims, helpless to their charms, fascinated, and they don't deserve our attention. They don't deserve to be treated as if they're larger than life. But then along comes Big Ed Kemper, a look of amusement spreading across his face as he slows his vehicle. Ed reaches effortlessly over to open the passenger's side door for us, checking his watch casually as he does so. And if you're like me, and you already know what time it is, you just can't help but get in with Kemper again. All right, we just got brought in by the white Morgan Freeman voice of Jack Luna up, and he he brings up a very interesting topic, and a topic that I'm going to start this episode off with. Now, 
The guy that we're covering today is one that... So you got heavy hitters in true crime, right? Yeah, yes. You mean like heavy hitters, like kind of celebrities or every like killers everybody knows about, kind of thing? Yeah, like kill, like he, like killer, like uh, like killers, like not like heavy hit, not like base, not like Sammy Sosa mm. and Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, right? King Griffey Jr., like killers, the the big names in killing, uh, Albert Fish, H. H. Holmes, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, like the heavy hitters. Yeah, yeah. So I can promise that. NTCK, it is highly unlikely that we will ever do, with the exception of today, a heavy hitter. I like, I, I generally like choosing cases that are relatively unknown and, and also somewhat goofy. I would agree. Uh, you know, there's something to be said about having a familiar voice read a classic, you know, like having a voice that we all recognize read. A, a classic book or, or, you know, something to put you to sleep at night, that kind of a thing. But, yeah, it's, you know, once a, once a, a case has been done so many times, it, it are we adding much to it by just putting our voice to it? And I think the answer t- typically is no or it's just an ego trip, you know? Yeah. And I think the reason a lot of people do that a lot of time is because the information is so readily accessible. Yes, exactly, totally, and and like, rightly so. As the as the uh, podcaster, it, it it's it's a bit of an exercise, right? It's a bit of an exercise in, uh, you know, could I can I do this or this is a case I've always wanted to do kind of thing. So there's maybe a little bit of fangirling in being a podcaster and covering a big case. I don't know. Right. And, you know, Jack brought us in talking about favorite serial killers. No, I don't have a favorite serial killer. They're all shitbags. There are uh, certain cases where I feel a little bit of empathy for the killer himself. Yeah. Like Jeffrey Dahmer is one that comes to mind. I've always felt there was always a part of me that felt a little bad for Jeffrey Dahmer. And only really Jeffrey Dahmer, I guess, now that I think about it. But there's a little bit. And it's just a, a sliver. Just a sliver the guy that we're going to be talking about today, um, when you get into his childhood, when you really get in, whenever you really dig your paws into the gristle of this guy's childhood, you start seeing where and why uh, this monster was formed. It's also crazy to think that so much has been said about this guy. So much news coverage, so much videos out there, so, so much. And you're like, how... And still, it's compelling to hear about Bill Clinton. I just, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it never seemed, you know, it's, it's all, all, my ears always perk up. I'm like, oh, are we talking about Bill Clinton? Okay. Right. So Bill again. Clinton was born in Arkansas. <laughs> in, not, I believe he was born in Arkansas, right? He was, That's correct. Yeah, isn't I think so. We're, we're, of course, today, we're talking about Ed Kemper. And he is, I don't have, like I said, I don't have a favorite serial killer, but I do have killers. That I am most interested and fascinated by. Yeah. And Ed Kemper is definitely number one on my list. I'd say number one on my list is Kane, but after Kane, probably Ed Kemper. Kane Hodder, the guy that played Jason Voorhees? No, uh, Kane, like, is in. Kane the Ad- wrestler? Uh, Adam and Eve Kane, like the one oh, that killed Kane Abel. Oh, Kane from the, the biblical Kane. Yeah. Like, what's up? You know, there's like four people on the earth and you, you off one with a rock, you, you know. Wow. Yeah. You killed 25% of the population. Yeah, that's hard to do. I think the only other person ever to do that was Genghis Khan. Yeah, Pol Pot, uh, you know, 
couple Chinese leaders and, and Kane. And the Clintons. And the, um, speaking of Bill Clinton. <laughs> so you don't have a, a favorite serial killer, I'm assuming? No, I, I, I'm in your camp. I have sympathy because of the, the kind of the childhood dynamic or the dynamics that went into the X, Y, or Z individual. I have ones that might that turn my head more than others, but uh, I wouldn't go as far as to say. I, I think it's a little bit coarse to say you have a favorite serial killer. Yes. Anybody that you could spend enough time on to make them your favorite, enough context into them to make them your favorite, should actually do the opposite, you know. Get out, you know, maybe have a picnic, fly a kite. Yeah. Walk a dog. Even if it's not your dog, steal somebody's dog, walk it. Do something positive. Yeah, join a community gardening class or huff glue. Basically anything other than, you know, Have a favorite serial killer. Have kill. a favorite serial killer. Yes. Yeah. And today, this will also be an, another thing. This will be our first episode that is going to be, this is going to be the first person that we've covered on TCK that's going to involve a two-part episode. So today we're covering part one, which is going to be Ed Kemper's childhood and a little bit into his adulthood prior to the killings. And then part two will cover uh, the all, all of the killings and the fallout. I'm excited about that. I, it's, this is my first two-parter as well for any podcast that I'm privy to or on. How do we do this? So we, we, we do part one, we stop, and then do we, um, do we just like, do I order a couple do I order pizzas or how do I how do I pass the time? Op, what you do after we stop recording today is absolutely none of my business. Hmm. It's none. It is not any of my concern. What will happen is tomorrow we will pick right back up and we'll finish recording, and that's just how that's 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 it. That's that's it. Okay, cool. Okay, and what you do between the end of this and the beginning of that, ah. Couldn't care for a hill of beans. Okay, I'll probably just be on standby anyway in case there's breaking news or... In the Ed Kemper case that happened in the 70s, breaking news. You're you're one of my most respected researchers, regardless of your geolocation. Uh, I wouldn't put it past you, brother. <laughs> hmm. I'm just saying he's really old now. Uh, he's probably, I'm assuming... On his final lap, he's still alive, but he's in prison. There hasn't been breaking news in this case in in forty years. Well, you never know. You never know, <laughs> do you? Okay. Well, let's get right back yeah. in, right into it. Up. How yep. about how about that? Yep. Edmund DeMille Kemper the third was born on December eighteenth, nineteen forty eight, in Burbank, California. He was thirteen pounds at birth, up, leaving a cavern in his mother's body that had to be backfilled with dirt rocks and vegetation to keep small children playing in her vicinity from falling in that that's excessive uh, it makes me wonder like how do you how does your uh, woman's body support a baby that is 13 pounds like you, do you have to like in, do you have to inject additional ingredients or nutrition through um you know, somewhere to feed it more? That's what, that's actually a very good question. And the answer, first off, I want to say that they didn't have to shove, they didn't have to like muzzle load her pussy mm. full of like rocks and dirt and stuff with like caterpillar, um, heavy machinery and stuff. I made that up. Okay. She just, her, her vaginal uh, orifice 
went back to relative norm normalicity, I suppose, after the 13-pound, big-ass-headed Ed Kemper fell out of it. The beauties of science. But, the, but to answer your question on how a woman could carry a child of that girth, Ed's mother, Clarnell, uh-huh. Clarnell was her name, was six foot and 200 pounds, and she was a linebacker for the Oakland Raiders <laughs> in the 1960 season, which was the year the Oakland Raiders was formed. And that was a lie, too. She was never a linebacker for the Oakland Raiders, but she was six foot tall. And 200 pounds. That is, that's shocking right there. I don't know anyone that, uh, no one should name their daughter Clarnell. That's shocking. It's a big lady. That is a beefy lady. She was also big. Yes. No, not big like fat. She wasn't obese or overweight. Just a big, solid lady. Yeah, I was going to say. She was a big woman. At 6'2", when I get to 200 pounds... I look that, that I, that's like my fighting weight. I, that I'm looking good at 200 pounds at six two, so I can imagine at six foot, yeah, you know, 200. She's you know, she's robust. She's probably got four pounds of boob. Yeah, she's got extra she's got two pounds per boob. So she's probably her fighting weight is probably actually 196. Yep, two two pounds per mammary boob. Yeah, you're right. She does have extra. She has ancillary body parts that I wouldn't have. So correct. Yep. Now, Ed was the middle child and the only son of Ed Kemper II and, like I said, Clarnell Kemper. He had an older sister named Susan Huey Kemper who was five years older than him. Now, Ed's father, Ed, <laughs> and that's going to get confusing because guess what? Ed's grandfather, guess what his name is? Ed, uh, Ed. Ed. Yeah, everybody, yeah. Why didn't they do Ed's the father, why didn't they do the Amish thing here and, like, give him, you know, like old droopy eye... Ed, tall Ed, you know, crumb shirt Ed. Why didn't they give him descriptive names like the Amish would have? Well, they're not Amish. Oh. Uh, actually, you know, I hadn't even thought about it, but in the entirety of this story, I never came across anything about religion whatsoever. So I think they may have not been anything. Hmm. And I hadn't even realized that until just now. Religion never gets ma- mentioned. Religion never gets mentioned in really the entirety of the Ed Kemper story from beginning uh, until current day. So, yeah, it's a lot more common than we think with serial killer families, probably. Actually not. There's a lot of religion, religious components to a lot of serial killers, so scratch that. Uh, to most of them. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, oops. <laughs> so Ed's father, Ed, was a six foot seven World War II Special Forces combat veteran and had tested nuclear weapons after the war, out in the Pacific Proving Grounds. Wow. Big guy. Six foot seven. Also a hard ass. He was on the front lines in World War II as a Special Forces Army. And just really uh, an all-American. I would say, though, can you really brag about testing nuclear weapons if you're still alive? Seems like the weapon wasn't very effective if you're the tester and you're... You live to tell about it. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought about that. I, 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 yeah. And plus, if you're if you're not the one flying the plane that drops, yeah, the bomb, right? Right. You're not really a tester. You're just watching. Yeah, that's like saying I won the national boxing championship uh, because I polished the the belt buckle of Floyd Mayweather. You know, I'm on. Yeah. I'm on the team. <laughs> No, you didn't win. (laughs) This is proof that we've always just been giving people trophies. Yep. For 
for mundane tasks. Yep. It's not new. Nope. It's not a millennial thing. It's not. We've been doing it ever since we had nuclear bombs. Now, after he got finished doing the fighting the wars and testing the bombs and watching the bombs, he came to California to work as an electrician. Now, Clarnell, his wife, she was honestly just a, a miserable old bitch who constantly, <laughs> who, who constantly barraged Ed II about his job being menial and pointless as an electrician. Clarnell was probably upset all the time because of the damage that little Ed had done to her nether regions. And it meant that she couldn't wear sundresses because it made her whistle when she walked. Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> that's why she was mad all the time and very upset all the time. She was like a human pan flute. Because <laughs> if she wore a sundress without panties and she ran down the street, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Some kids in the neighborhood are like, Andy Griffith's on. I got to go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. do 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 no, it's just Clarnell again. Now, they had a very troubled marriage from the get-go. Clarnell and, and Ed II did not get along. And Ed II later said that suicide missions and atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with Clarnell. He also once said that living with her affected him, quote, more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front lines did. This is just a, a really terrible woman. Wow. <laughs> that is, that's, that's a mouthful right there. And, and you might say, hey, you know, we're only getting the opinion of one person here. And the other opinion is from, it needs to, I need, I cannot elaborate enough. Anybody that ever had anything to do with Clarnell shares this sentiment about her. I know people like this. I know, I know people like this. Yes. Just a miserable angry bitch. Knowing about Ed Kemper, so much of this is making sense now. Yeah, and it gets way worse. Okay, okay. Ooh. In 1951, Ed Kemper's younger sister, Alan Lee Kemper, is born. Now, by age four, little Ed was already turning into Big Ed because he was already much taller than the other kids his age. He occasionally went by the nickname Guy to differentiate between all the damn Ed Kempers in this story. And that's <laughs> probably the most boring nickname ever, Guy. 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 You really put a lot of thought into that one. <laughs> Clarnell. Man, all of the kids in his family, though, they, they have really rough names. Like, his sister's name is Alan. And didn't you say that his other sister, like, her middle name was Huey? Yeah, he, yes. Susan Huey, like, what's going on? Who's naming these Walt Disney? Well, on his mother, Ed, would, Ed, Ed said, My mother was a sick, angry, hungry, very sad woman. She was a hater. She had a failed marriage with my father, and I'm a constant reminder of that failure. She frequently belittled, humiliated, and abused me. Other words people used to describe Clarnell were neurotic, and a domineering alcoholic. Wow. So, sounds like a lot of fun to be around. She sounds like a treat. Yeah. She also refused to show Ed any affection whatsoever because she was afraid it would turn him gay, which is ridiculous. The only way you can turn a kid gay is by letting him watch anything with Ryan Reynolds in it. That's a beautiful <laughs> man. That's he is glorious. Man. Him and Ryan Gosling, I think he's he's mesmerizing. This seemed like a common thing growing up with, with maybe it was Southern kids, but 
their parents not showing them affection because they're afraid to turn them gay. <laughs> I, yeah, I had a friend actually whose dad was like straight out of a comic book, you know, like just boy, yeah, the the total like barking orders from the bleachers kind of dad and everything was just testosterone filled. Yeah, yeah, I I know these kind. He's kind. He, uh, my friend actually turned out to be gay. Did he really? No, I made that up. So at a young age, Ed is already showing signs of antisocial behavior. And in 1955, at the age of seven, Ed's older sister, Susan, begins mocking him after finding out that he has a crush on his second grade teacher. She says, why don't you try to kiss her, Ed? <laughs> and Ed, re- and I don't know, she... I don't know if she laughed like that. But Ed replied to this question, If I kissed her, I'd have to kill her first. Oh, wow. What a deep thought. What a... Seven years old. Jeez. Seven years. And they probably had a good laugh at that. Yeah, they did. <laughs> You'd have to kill her. <laughs> and uh, this te- this came from Susan herself years later on the witness stand. Oof. That's... If I kissed her, I'd have to kill her first. Oh, and that's gosh. probably... I bet that's what he sounded like at seven years old. He sounded like the Dark Knight. Yeah, right. If I killed her, if I kissed her, I'd have to kill her first. Yeah. He loses one of his heads later and he goes, where is her? (laughs) (laughs) Where is her? (laughs) Clarnell! Not long afterwards, he steals his father's World War II bayonet and sneaks out of the house at nighttime, goes to the teacher's house, and watches her through her windows for hours on end while fantasizing about killing her and having sex with her corpse. Oh. And probably vigorously rubbing the front of his Levi's. Oh, my god! And that's gosh. understandable because we've all had teachers that we liked, if you think about it. That's just a Zoom call. That's an old-school Zoom call. Uh, and all the kids last year were doing Zoom classes. That's just a, that's a, 19, that's a 1950s Zoom call. I didn't. You're in her house. You're watching her. I never thought of it that way. It's very, it's very true. Also still illegal, severely illegal. Zoom calls? No, looking at someone through a window. Ah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it, I'm pretty sure it is. I'm pretty sure it's still illegal. Ah. Yeah, well, big semantics. I agree to disagree. 1956. At eight years old, his mother, Clarnell, disciplines him. By making him sleep in the cellar for eight months. The only way in and out of the cellar was through a trap door under the table. He's living like a troll. Wow. At eight years old. Jeez. Now, we don't. We, we never do know what he was disciplined for at this time at eight years old. But, uh, yeah, the, the trap door for the cellar was underneath the table. And a lot of times in uh, uh, when podcasts have done this in the past they will confuse this situation with another situation that will happen in the future there were two separate situations where ed was forced to sleep in a basement and a cellar two so this is the first one and to get down into it he had to lift a trap door underneath the kitchen table like he was a, a jew hiding from the nazis during world war 2 i almost made a comment that said probably about as frightening as a Jew hiding from the Nazis, but that might be an overreach. But still, for a little kid, that would be... Wow. Intense. Yeah. Or in cellars. (laughs) Not intense. In cellars. Get it? Mm Mm-hmm. 
1957, at nine years old, Kemper's mother and father separate. Now, Kemper was devastated at this because he was very close with his father, or so he thought. Um, We'll find out later that those feelings weren't reciprocated, but Ed thought that him and his father were very close. It turns out, it kind of seems like, and this is never, but from what I have gathered, it kind of seems like his dad was kind of creeped out by Ed from an early age, and he just kind of like maybe loved on him and, and, and gave him fatherly care out of fear. But he wasn't abusive at any point. He was never abusive to Ed. The entirety of Ed's life, his father was never abusive. Ed himself described his father as kind, caring, and generous, and he looked forward to any occasion where he would get to stay with him when Clarnell would allow it. Naturally, though, little Ed, you know, with our judicial system, the way things work in court, little Ed was ordered to live with his mother, Clarnell, the super bitch, and the second she gets the chance, she moves Ed and his two sisters to the seventh circle of Helena, Montana. <laughs> I see what you did there. That's funny. Hey, wait. Hey, did you say Montana? I did. I did. Interesting. Here we go. Did you know that, yeah. have you ever heard of a three-legged buffalo nickel? I have. Yeah. Okay, so the first. No, I haven't. The, the, okay, well, it's a buffalo nickel. Yeah. From the from the the earlier part of the 19th century, mm-hmm. on the back was a buffalo, and obviously it had four legs standing on the ground. But mm, obviously, there was a window of time where there was a three-legged buffalo nickel that was discovered, and there was a whole bunch of them that had made it into circulation. You don't say. The first one that they believe was actually discovered sometime between maybe 1937-39. Sounds about right. By C.F. Cowboy Franzen, Franzen yeah. of Billings, Montana. So mm-hmm. right, or, right in the you know, same statal region. Yeah, Montana. And I've got a big story on 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 how that three-legged legged buffalo nickel came to be. She's really cool. Do you want to hear it? or Maybe you could tell us sometime. Okay, yeah, let's put, we'll put that on the books. Put it on the books. So Ed becomes a huge John Wayne fan after the breakup of his mother and father. And right here, we'll put in a little, so Ed did a lot of talking. Uh, he, he did a lot of interviews. We probably have more audio footage of uh, our audio interviews and, and video footage of Ed being interviewed than any other serial killer in history. He talked a lot. Super intelligent guy, very articulate, well-spoken. And this is a snippet from Ed Kemper himself on his kind of infatuation with John Wayne and and why he had that infatuation. Because, you know, looking at myself and how I was developing inside, nothing good could come of that. And you had also a great admiration for John Wayne at the time. He looked a lot like my dad. And he acted a lot like my dad. My dad was kind of a big, loud guy. Actually, John Wayne was six foot four, had very little tiny feet. My dad was six foot seven. He had little tiny feet. And you notice how comedians, when they imitate how John Wayne walked, uh, there's this rambling thing with the hips waving, and they always do this trick. You ever wonder why? He didn't just pick that way to walk. I found, uh, quite by accident, that very big men with very little feet, who have abnormally small feet, have a tough time balancing, and it's a little balancing act they're going through. I went to uh, Grauman's Chinese Theater after it was renamed. And I went and checked all those different footprints out. And here I'd grown up as a kid, not a very tall kid, looking at other people being like this, much shorter than me. Um, In my mind's eye, it was all balanced. 
And when I saw pictures of other kids in me, or other people in me, and there's this great difference, it was always shocking to me too, because I never saw it that way. <clears throat> but here I went, and I watch all these movies and TV programs, and I see these people as being bigger than me because I'm a youth. And then I go to this, this physical exhibit where it shows their foot size. And I step on John Wayne's boot print with his cowboy boot, and my shoe completely covers it over. It's gone. When I was 14 years old, I had bigger feet than he did. <laughs> you know? When I was 14 years old, I had bigger feet than my father. I was six foot three and a half. He's six seven. He works on a construction site as an electrician. I'm going to junior high school. We go to Kinney's. We get the same kind of Oxford shoes, black Oxfords. I wear a 14 and a half. Excuse me. I wear a 12 and a half, he wears a 12, all right? In the mix-up of getting up and going to work and going to school in the morning, he comes running around the house looking for his shoes, he grabs mine. I can't find mine, so I go running around the house and I grab his. And all day long, I'm walking around with these pinched feet, I got blisters developing. He's flopping around at work, half a size too big in his shoe, and he says, God damn it, got my kid's shoes again. And they're all saying, gee, big Ed, you know? Your kid, you got his shoes on and you're flopping around in them, and they, he thought that was great. Well, that was a big laugh, right? Hey, I, I was kind of proud of that, too, because it's following in father's footsteps. When I was 14 years old, I put his old army jacket on, his Class A uniform. I put his All right, and we are on, and back, and my you see there, it talks about right feet a lot, which is because I had brought not really in his character. He doesn't have a foot, in, uh, a foot fetish I have a very uh, that we're aware of. He has a dead, rotting head. Put his penis Eight in their mouth. Quarters is very big. It's hard to find. Anyway, like so that. gross. Clarnell's alcoholism starts worsening with the move, and so was the abuse with Ed. She starts making him sleep in a in the locked basement. Now, this is the second instance where he has to sleep in the basement or the cellar. But this is a basement. She makes him sleep in the locked basement of this old house they rented in Montana because she was afraid he would harm or molest his sisters. Now, this basement had granite walls and hewn wood floorboards. Now, hewn means a piece of lumber that has been squared by axe. So it has all kinds of axe marks in it. It's very creepy looking, right? Very old school, very Lizzie Borden-esque. Yeah. Back back at that time uh, in the fi- in the 50s, you, the innovations were coming about about cutting boards. So when you went to a lumber yard, you could get hewn wood or the newer industrialized boards which were much more uh, smooth with the smoother finish from a, a more automated process basically you you could choose between the two you just had to axe them yeah i thought there for a moment that we were i was like wow this is genuine and <laughs> no uh, it's not oh, uh, so, like I said, this basement had gra- I hate you. This basement had <laughs> granite walls, and so, like I said, this basement had granite walls and hewn wood floorboards. Really creepy. It was lit by those creepy old light bulbs that dangled from a wire at the end of a chain, and had a pull string. Right? You know those the the, the lights that they use basically in every horror movie ever. Yeah, yeah. That creepy. swing. And and they end up illuminating the ghost standing in the corner in the horror movies. I think they did that because most basements were were built using construction lighting or before the rest of the house was on top. So they, I think most people just phoned it in on the lighting down there because it wasn't dark at the time they were building it. So they're like, you know, they weren't really thinking about aesthetic. 
as much. I guess. <sighs> yeah, there were no windows in the basement, none whatsoever. And Clarnell would lock the basement door behind Ed when he entered it so that he couldn't get out. And, and also because she complained that it was so cold down there and she didn't want the cold miserableness of the basement leaking into the rest of the house. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> the self-awareness of her is, is quite intense. Wow. <laughs> oh, gosh. I would imagine that at nine years old, this isn't an ideal place to spend your formulative years. No. Yeah, no. Now, Ed said that he was terrified of this basement, absolutely horrified of it. And what he would have to do was the first light at the base of the steps was actually turned on by a push button at the top of the steps. So what he would have to do would be push the button, turn the light on at the base of the steps, and then all the rest of the lights were pull string. So what he would have to do would be turn the push light on at the top of the steps, go, and then... This basement ran the entire length of the house. The cot that he slept on with a sleeping bag. It was a sleeping bag. on. He was he was sleeping like a, a POW. Was in the very back corner of, the, of this dank, dark, cold, probably mold-infested basement. So he would have to walk into the... He said the light would only cover like a quarter of the basement. So he would have to find his way back through the dark into the back of the basement... And it terrified him, and then he would have to pull that light on, and then he would have to walk back up the stairs, turn the light off that he had turned on because his mom would bitch at him for leaving too many oh, lights on. Geez. And then he would have to stumble down the stairs back to, to the only light in the base. He talked about this a lot. I think this may have scarred him. I would wager that primitive mining operations had a better lighting setup than he did in the basement. <laughs> Holy cow. Now, Beside his little bed there was a furnace, the house furnace, and Ed spent most of his time during these months in the basement where he was banished to the basement, staring into the flames of the furnace for hours on end, and he says this is where his hatred for women really started to grow, and that was because of his mothers and sisters. And you'll figure out sisters why later. Hey, let me ask you, as a parent, do you have any... Uh, smaller children that are yours that fall into the category of, yeah, sometimes they're so quiet, I, I don't even know where they are. Do you have any kids like that that just, you know, keep their head down, could end up in, you know, stay in their room the whole time, and you're like, oh, yeah, where's so-and-so? Our boy is going through that right now. Yeah, mine too. And as a good parent, it's hard Sometimes to remember, oh, yeah, I should probably go up and air out his room and make sure he's not dead. Could you imagine if you hate your child and, like, how much time that child would would be spending away from you? Now, like I said, Ed would just sit down there for hours on end, staring into the flames of the furnace. And he also says this is the first time he saw the devil. Oh. Also around this time, Ed develops an obsession with decapitation which he would carry with him for the rest of his life, up to today, I would imagine. And that can possibly be pinpointed to one specific moment in his life. And uh, let's let Ed describe that moment. I made a comment, and someone wrote about it, that, um, that when I was young, I was about eight or nine years old, I went to a, this little, come on, it was like at a record store or something, and they had this crowd of kids there, and there was a magic show. And this guy, you've probably seen it, the fake guillotine hand and they put the potato there and someone puts their neck in the uh, in the brace 
and they slam this thing down and the potato down below chops in two, but the person's head doesn't fall off, right? And everybody gets very fascinated by that. Oh my God. And then when he puts the blade in place and he pushes it down, it goes through that neck hole, but it never chops anybody's head off. Okay, so he wanted a volunteer out of the, I'm not standing in this crowd watching this show, and he wanted a volunteer out of the audience. And some quite beautiful little 16-year-old girl gets up there and this big laugh and you're all giddy and stuff. And I start getting caught up in this. I said, wow. Right at that moment, I departed reality because logically I should have been able to ascertain that that could not happen. You're not going to get away with chopping somebody's head off in the middle of, uh, <laughs> in the middle of Helena, Montana, the capital city. Um, but the concept of it was so raw and it was titillating, I says, wow, gee, I've got to watch this. And he had her girlfriend come over and put her hands there to catch her head so it wouldn't fall in the basket, you know. And he was making jokes about this. I got caught up in this, this, um, this interplay between normal concerns. You don't want to get a bump on her head. Well, hey, if you're chopping her head off, it doesn't matter, right? And this is catching in my mind somehow, and I'm saying, wow. And naturally, everybody let out a shriek, and they're all excited, and oh, wow. And as he chops, and the potato falls, and her head doesn't go anyplace, and he unlocks the brace, and she gets out laughing, and he gives her some little prize for coming up and uh, participating in the experiment. That's the first time I'd ever seen a show like that. You know, you see things like that on TV, it's one thing, but to be there and watch things like that, you get more caught up in it. Um, and I went from there. That became another piece. That's the, that's the only way I can really, the only event in my life that I can align that fascination with was, was the fact that she was a very alluring young lady. I'm coming close to approaching puberty. I think I hit it a little early because between the ages of about 10 and 13, I was going through some incredible emotional shifts. Um, and they say that going into puberty for young men and, young, and girls, I guess, is a very, very upheaving time in their lives. Well, so that's, that's intense. Let me ask you, that, that got me thinking... You know, I've thought I've thought about this before. I'm like, if I if there was an evil person that did evil things and the world knew they were evil and I got a hold of them and was given the task to kill this person however I saw fit, you know, I have a method in place in my head how I would probably go through making sure this person suffered, you know. Yeah. It's not it's not nice of me, but it's what I would you know, I guess you know, dream, my dream building that I would do. I've done this before. And I always wonder when people really want somebody to suffer. Like when you see these videos of cartel and stuff like that. and yeah. or, or even like maybe there's just a, a serial pedophile or somebody and you, you're like, I would torture that. Why aren't tourniquets used more often? Good question. Because yes, right? Also... Like decapitation is last on my list because yeah. it's lights out. It's That's lights the last out appendage. so quick. Yeah, it's like nothing's <laughs> happening once you do that. So it, it, the obsession with decapitation has always been an interesting one because it's so quick and so final. I mean, unless you're unless you're messing around and you're not intent on killing them right away, there are I guess ways to do that. But but to me, there's there's some, there's a message there somewhere in the the killer that that gravitates toward decapitation you know well ed was so so you have product and process killers right yeah. those are the two main motivations for murder you have people that do it for the rush of the kill itself and then people that do it as 
as a means to an end to get what they want, but which is the body. Right. Jeffrey Dahmer didn't enjoy the kill itself. He was going for the product. The body. I see. Ed okay. Kemper was a product killer. I had originally said right like I knew what you were talking about just to seem like I knew what you were talking but I get it now that you've explained it. John Wayne Gacy was a was a process killer. He really enjoyed the act of the murder itself. Mm. Ed Kemper was just trying to get that head. Which one is Bill Clinton? In two in more ways than one. Bill Clinton would be a process killer then? Yes. Yeah, especially Product? Hillary. Yes, pro- both process killers. Both process killers. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. In 1958, at 10 years old, <laughs> Ed buries the family's Siamese cat alive. Oh. After it died, he digs it back up, cuts its head off, mounts it on a spike in his bedroom, and then prays to it like it's an Egyptian god, and boys will be boys. I guess. Hey, okay, as a weird kid, as a youth growing up in fields and, you know, dirt and trees and all that, did you spend any time in your youth killing animals? The thing I probably closest did to this was, uh, and I talked about it in one of our Hugs episodes, I believe it was Hugs, uh, we had a stillborn puppy one time that came out dead, and I put it in a mason jar and buried it under a tree. And then, uh, I don't know, maybe a year later or so, two years later, I dug it back up and, and wanted to see what it looked like. And it looked like uh, gray soup. It looked like what you would imagine it looked like. It was yeah. really, really gross. And I don't know what I was expecting. I don't know if I thought it would, it would be a cocoon and a butterfly would be flying. I don't know what, but it was just really a disappointment. Yeah. I, I've always, I, I can't say I've struggled with that whole, you know, thing where they say that serial killers, uh, the, uh, an indicator is killing animals. Because I think that's a massive swath of the population of kids with BB guns growing up. You know, I mean, there's only so many paper targets you can shoot at before you're like, I'm going to shoot a bird. But Ed seems to take that to another level all together. Oh, we're going to get into shooting birds here in a little bit. <laughs> I laugh, but I meant no, no, no. Now, Ed's father briefly returns for a minute in an effort to fix his marriage, but quickly realizes Carnell is still a huge, nagging bitch, so he nopes the fuck out again, and in a last-ditch effort to do something good for his son, he makes sure that Ed is given a room on the second floor and freed from the basement before leaving. So, Ed the second pops up. He's like, hey, maybe we can work on this, and Carnell's like, and then he's like, oh, no, never mind. I have made a mistake. By the Do way, it. get our son out of the basement. And then after he made sure that happened, he bounced out again. That's it's a bit heartbreaking to think, you know, a dad like that. You wonder, like, was he sad about not being able to be with I, his I get kids, the sense, or? just judging by the way that, that Ed described his father, that there was a little bit of heartbreak on his end. Yes. Yeah. I That's really hard. think he tried. I, the way that everybody makes this woman sound is she was impossible to be around she was maybe the worst person in the world obviously aside from ed kemper do you know like in your head when you hear the story about clarnell is there anybody in your head that you're like i know this person like i know exactly what this kind of uh, person. not to this extent really no i've got one i've got one. Oh yeah and their kids are evident of it too that's the other sad part Oh, really? Did they end up growing to be six foot nine and decapitating a bunch of co-eds and then Not having yet. sex with their decomposing mouths? Not yet, uh, technically, to that extent, but 
There's a reason why I have ring cameras all over my house. <laughs> in 1960, a fellow by the name of Carol Chessman is executed by gas chamber. And it becomes a national headline. Ed, because of this, the, he, he's watching the news. He's reading the newspapers. Ed develops a macabre fascination with execution around this time because of this Carol Chessman case. And and that will carry on. Also, and because of this fascination, one of Ed's favorite games to play with his sister, Alan, and one of the neighborhood, one of the other neighborhood girls was uh, he had a game called Electric Chair and a game called Gas Chamber. And w- what this entailed was tying it up in this big chair that was in his room. He called it a big fluffy chair on the second floor of their house. And then his sister would flip an imaginary switch and he would have to pay for his sins via death. And he would pretend to get either electrocuted or, or gas chambered. And that meant that he would writhe around and start screaming and, and he would practice dying. And that sounds like fun. That sounds like fun. That game sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, but have you ever played the Hasbro board game Mousetrap? Yeah. Yes. It's a zany action, a crazy contraption, the fun is catching. It's Mousetrap. Still to this day, I don't know how that game was actually supposed to be played. Uh, we just usually set it up and then caught the mouse and then ended up leaving the pieces on the table and going outside and hitting a rock with a stick. Yeah, that was the problem with Mousetrap. There were a couple games like that where the setup was so arduous that by the time you're done, it's like, nah. Let's just catch this mouse already and fucking go outside. Yeah, like there were so many pieces to construct. So there was Mousetrap. Another one that was like, oh, come on already was Lincoln Logs. That wasn't a game, though, right? That was just like Legos. There wasn't like a purpose. The purpose was just to build whatever. Huh. I don't know. I'm- Mousetrap was actually, I think the confusion here, you don't understand. Mousetrap was actually a board game. There was a purpose. You rolled dice yeah. and shit. Right. And you had to yeah. move pieces. But what all the kids that I know and myself did was you would just end up setting it up and then you would just set the little trap that would trigger all the stuff and the guy on the diving board, the little plastic guy, and he would dive and then the marble would roll and then it would end up catching, it would end up triggering the mechanism to lower the little cage down over the mouse. And that's all the kids ended up doing and never even yeah. played the game. Right. Yeah, me too. Uh, but it, it was similar to, similar to Lincoln Logs. Lincoln Logs was the same thing. You know, mom it would wasn't. help me set it up. No, yeah, it wasn't. wasn't. Yeah, mom there would help me set it up. There was a game yes. to fucking uh-huh. Lincoln Logs. There was. Mom would help me set it up. She helps me build the cabin. Oh my God, and then she's like, be some now you have to save Mormon Lincoln. Thing. And I never could save him. And she's like, oh, you let Lincoln die again. And I always just saved Lincoln, kind of like How the mouse. How are you not a serial killer? Uh, statistically or spiritually, do you mean? Lincoln Logs wasn't a board game op. You just, it was like Legos. You just built whatever your little heart desired. And that was the point. No, you could either build the cabin or you could build the theater. The cabin. The cabin or the theater. Or the cabin. You could build the cabin or the cabin. Because you've never been to a theater in your entire life that was made out of fucking logs. Ever. Not once. And then you put Lincoln in... The, either the cabin or the theater, and then you have oh, to try I see to what save you're him. Doing. Okay, yeah. Before, Man, okay, yeah. I read the book Manhunt, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. He was killed in a theater by John Wilkes Booth. So you, at that age, were building the theater that Abraham Lincoln was killed in and reenacting the assassination of of Abraham Lincoln. 
Yes, that was the game. The game. Mom, mom always said it. That's the game. If, that, if, moving on. Another oh, another one of Ed's favorite games to play when he was a child. And this, this one he played with his friends in the in the hood there in his in his stomping grounds was to whenever they'd be walking down the sidewalk, Ed would love to just go lay out in the street and wait for cars to come up. And when they stopped and got out, he would just jump off, jump up and run off laughing. It's kind of like Jackass, but with a future serial killer. <laughs> Plus a super tall kid who I'm guessing doesn't run fast. So it's sort of like watching the giant from that movie, My Giant, like running across the, you know, cocoon, cocoon, <laughs> ha, 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 cocoon, cocoon. <laughs> this kind of behavior kind of reminds me of Jeffrey Dahmer a little bit. He did shit like yeah. this. Yeah. Growing it's up. true. Very Jeffrey Dahmer-esque, that, that kind of thing. Actually, yep. I guess technically, because Ed became before Jeffrey Dahmer, that's what came first in this chicken or Ed debate. I guess Jeffrey is more like Ed Kemper. Did you just say chicken or Ed? What came first, the chicken or the Ed? And it would be, in this case, Ed. It would have been Ed. And he came all over those decomposing heads Chickens. over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. I did save Lincoln one time. And the cool thing about that is there's no cleanup because you can just set the head on a towel and it just runs down the throat and out the stump onto really the towel. Hardest part was trying to put out the fire if mother lit the cabin on fire first. You that could was... only build cabins with linking logs up. But in 1961, Ed's father and mother finalized the divorce. And at 13 years old, they get another pet cat that liked his younger sister, Alan, the most, so Ed killed it, too. But this one he didn't he didn't bury alive. He cut it up into pieces with a machete and then kept some of them in his closet in his room. His mother does eventually find them, but she didn't do anything aside from slowly back out of the room because Ed was a towering, terrifying mongrel. Wow. She didn't do anything. She didn't do anything. And I probably wouldn't either. I would just, like, you know that gif of Homer Simpson slowly backing into the bushes yeah like <laughs> exactly that's what you do <laughs> it's around this time that ed also begins enjoying taking his sister's dolls and removing their hands and heads which is uh how many sisters did he do this to how many his sisters dolls two. not his sisters oh, oh. he I had two he sisters were... he had one older sister that was five years older than him and one that was two years younger Okay, yeah. In this case, this is where in the script a comma would help. Oh my goodness! So he's removing the dolls' heads and arm, heads and hands, um, probably sharpening his future skills. His sisters also have a silly sense of humor, much like Ed. Once his older sister Susan shoved him in front of a train, where he barely got out of the way in time. On another occasion, she pushed him into the deep end of a swimming pool, where he nearly drowned to death. Because he couldn't swim. It uh, turns out he was 47 fucking foot tall, so all he had to do was stand up. <laughs> I wonder if that was jokes that they were playing on him or like some deep-seated sense of survival. Like, So in one of the books guy. that I read, uh, the author speculates that the sister, the older sister Susan, kind of sensed something evil and dark brewing. And she did uh, at, at, at a young age, it turns out, because Ed at this point was 13 years old. She would have been 18. She's just trying to, to cut the head off this snake before it 
starts striking out. So he, the author speculates that she was trying to kill him before he could reach adulthood. Yeah, you, and rewinding just a second to something else you said was like when the mom made him stay in the basement, which is terrible, but to keep him from potentially molesting his sisters makes you wonder if maybe a bit of that story has been lost because that's a that's a pretty big stretch if they and this sounds terrible but if they were like terribly deeply like distorted religious you know i could see that kind of thing where mom you know is like you know trying to keep the sanctity of her you know or virtue of her daughters, or and in that kind of situation, you'd hear you'd be like, "Okay, yeah, I can see she's crazy." So that's yeah. But in this case, with no religion as a basis, it makes you wonder, like, what was the basis for her jumping to that kind of a conclusion? Like, maybe there had been something that had occurred to to make her think that you know I got to lock this kid away, otherwise he's going to do this. Well, she was also. Crazy, I mean, I so guess, I don't know. but also. On many accounts, too, it's it, it it is well documented that from an early age, his mother favored Clar- Clarnell favored the sisters above Ed for, pretty much from the get go. Clarnell just hated men. So this is kind of a Cinderella story. Okay, it's like a reverse Cinderella. I mean, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or gender gender exactly. swap yeah. Cinderella. Yeah. 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 So maybe there is a little yeah. bit of that. Maybe there are there, there there are parts of the story that are lost to history. A lot of this does come from Ed himself, and if he had fantasies about molesting his sisters, he probably wouldn't have revealed that during interviews. But what, as far as what we have to go off of, um, it does seem that Clarnell really kind of favored the two sisters over Ed from the get go. From before he ever showed any signs, any any signs of maybe possibly being homicidal in the future or anything like that. She just treated him like shit from the jump. And the heads are kind of symbol symbolic of the pumpkins. He cut the head off hoping that it would turn into a carriage that he could be whisked away yeah, from this Yeah, a big smelly gray life. carriage. Yep. It's all coming together now. Semen dropping out of the bottom of it. Like I said, Ed is now 13 years old, but he is also 6 foot 4. At 13 years old, 6 foot 4. His mother begins at this point constantly berating him now for his looks. She makes fun of his size and tells him that he looks just like his father, which she hates. She also constantly tells him that no woman could ever love somebody that looked at him. It's like she's trying to make a serial killer. It's like that's the plan here. Like, let's, she's doing all, ticking all the boxes. Yeah, let's make a serial killer. You know, there's that phrase, poking the bear, and he's a literal yes. bear. It's kind of like, I feel like this is like whenever Michael Jordan or maybe Shaquille O'Neal's parents saw, wow, our, our child is really large. He probably has a career, a possible career in the NBA, and then they start shaping him to be the, the legend and the, and the champion that he is today. It's like Clarnell did that with Edge. He's like, this is a big guy. He's smart. Make a great murderer. Yeah. So let's start training. Yeah, it's like she was. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. She was his coach, basically, is yes. what you're saying. Now, his sisters and mother always teased him. And like I said, his mother's preferred his sisters over him. His mother would also regularly kind of persuade the sisters to to pick at him as well. So it's kind of, Ed, because his father is gone, it's kind of Ed versus three. It's Ed against, it's Ed against three women in this house, constantly being attacked on all sides from all three of them, nonstop, relentlessly. Yep, Kemparella. 
February 17, 1962, Clarnell marries a man and Marine Corps veteran. I don't know why. I, it wasn't a woman. Are those two people, two separate? He met, she married a man and a Marine Corps Clarnell marries veteran. a Marine Corps veteran from World War II by the name of Norman Turnquist. Now, he was, a at the time that they got married, a 45-year-old plumber who she also felt was beneath her because of his occupation. But he was a plumber when they got together. Yeah. So... But but she all uh, this this man would later admit that she constantly berated him about how menial and stupid his job as a plumber was and how he wasn't as good as some of the other men in the neighborhood. This marriage would only last fourteen months, but in that time, Norman does try to bond with thirteen-year-old little but big Ed Kemper. He takes him fishing and hunting, but he never got through to the boy. Ed was just uninterested. It seems kind of. In, in his stepfather. And one time, my dad, my dad used to take me hunting, right up. Uh, my dad used to take mm-hmm. me hunting and fishing all the time. And my dad accidentally blew his middle finger off with a shotgun one time and had to have it surgically oh. reattached. This is all a, a 100% true story. Wow. And because it was reattached, he couldn't move it. And it had this big wrecking ball knuckle on it where they had reattached it. And whenever I was like, <laughs> probably about. From, from the time that he actually started making me hunt with him from probably about five years old until he actually passed away, he would make me walk in front of him. And if I walked too loud, he would take that wrecking ball on his knuckle and pop me in the back of the head with it. He would flick it like, you know how you spin a towel, a damp towel, and smack somebody in the... He would do that, but with that yeah. wrecking ball on his finger, that huge knuckle, and it would leave big pop knots on the back of my head, and it felt like getting hit with a golf ball and because of dad what? i am the quietest person in the on the earth going through the woods i'm telling you <laughs> i could sneak up i could sneak up on a squirrel in a tree okay because <laughs> i hated catching that knuckle to the back of my head it was a terrible <laughs> yeah, kids gotta yeah. learn right and it was effective <laughs> yeah. and he didn't give me love because he didn't want me to be a gay yeah <laughs> Miss your dad. Later in the interviews, <laughs> later in the interviews, Ed Ed would recall that once while out on one of these little fishing trips uh, with his with his stepfather, they were at Hauser Dam near their home. He noticed an old iron bar laying on the bank. He picks the bar up and stands behind his stepfather for a long period of time, seriously consider bashing him over the head with it, killing him with it, and then stealing his car. And running off to California to be with his real father. Yeah, could have done it. He was going to bash his very caring stepfather, who was just trying to bond with the boy, cave his head in with an iron bar, leave him laying there, steal the car, and, and run off to California. I, I get that he's got you know these these men male figures in his life who, for all intents and purposes, they 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 seem like when they're with him, they're they're supportive of him and everything. I would I would wager that. In some, somewhere in Ed's head, he's translating these men, though, as they're with such a terrible woman as Clarnell, that they're eating into the equity that they have yes. with Ed. You know, like, come on, you, come on, guy. I I, mean, I appreciate the fishing trip, but you, something's wrong with you if you're you with need this to, lady. Well, not only that, but can you do something? Can you help me out? Yeah, exactly. Right. Good point. Good point. Yep. So, but... but it really does. Uh, 
Clarnell will get end up getting married a total of three times, and all of all of the men uh, say the exact same thing that it was hell on earth living with her, that it was absolute hell. Now on June twentieth, nineteen sixty three, Clarnell divorces Norman Turnquist after just fourteen months of marriage. Norman claimed it was on the grounds of extreme cruelty. By the way, extreme cruelty on 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 Clarnell's part. By the way. Need I remind you, this guy was a Purple Heart recipient, a World War II Marine Corps combat veteran. He fought the fucking Nazis. He's seen the worst of humanity, and he divorced this woman because he considered her extremely cruel. <laughs> Says a lot. <laughs> Thanksgiving Day, 1963. Boy. At 14 years old, Ed steals his mother's car and runs away from home back to California to look for his father. He eventually finds him in Van Nuys, California, and when he gets there, he discovers that his father has remarried a lady, a German lady, actually, by the name of Elfried Weber, and now has a stepson who is two years older than Ed, and this young man's name was Gilbert Otto Brettfeld. Uh, by all accounts, Miss Elfried Weber was jaw-droppingly gorgeous. Was like, And there is a picture of her... It's hard to find. If you do enough uh, web sleuthing and digging, you can't find it. She is very uh, Marilyn Monroe-esque. I'm good talking about a, good a bombshell, this young lady was. He deserves that. Yes. Yes, he did. He did. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I see her here. Yeah. So She's when he pretty. gets to Van Nuys, finds his father with his new wife and new stepson, his father does allow him to stay for a while. But unfortunately for Ed, he makes his new stepmother extremely un- comfortable. And by that, I mean he would stare at her often without blinking. He hated her because he felt like she had taken his father from him, and he also felt like his father had kind of betrayed his country because she was German, and he had spent all of World War II fighting the Germans. So he was kind of, I guess, maybe disappointed in his father, but he also felt like she had taken his father from him. Uh, Ed also once walked in on her naked, and didn't mind it one bit. He later claimed that he got sexual fantasies from it and, and got really aroused. Uh, his stepmother claimed that just being in Ed's vicinity gave her migraines. <laughs> wow. Now, like I said, Ed makes her very uncomfortable. Imagine that. Imagine like a teenage lurch from the Adams family just moved in with you and you didn't sign up for this. And he just likes to stare a lot. He, he probably prefers eating his food off the floor in the basement. Keeps tearing your cat's heads off. It would be frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, she's got a point. It would be very frustrating. Now, his his behavior towards his stepmother grows worse. And uh, eventually, Ed Kemper Sr. has enough of it. But the tipping point, however, came just one week before Christmas in 1963. And on this evening, while Ed's father, Ed II, was at work, Ed was left alone with this with his very pregnant stepmother, Elfred Weber. So it's just Ed and Elfred in the house there, and Ed begins following her around the house and staring at her without speaking. So she goes somewhere, he walks behind her and then stands there and just looks at her. Um, she's very pregnant. Creepy. Wow. This obviously makes her uncomfortable. And when she got up to leave the room, he would close the blinds and the curtains in that room. So eventually she's moved all around the house, he's closed all the blinds and curtains She's left in the, standing in the living room with Ed. When he reaches up to close the blinds and curtains in there, he says, 
It's too bright in here. And at that moment, Ed's stepbrother, Gilbert, who was two years older than Ed, shows up and he immediately notices that his mother, Alfred, is extremely uncomfortable and absolutely terrified. So he grabs, so so Ed's stepbrother, Gilbert, grabs a hammer and threatens to beat Ed to death with it. Uh, when Ed's father gets home, he's very upset uh, at his son's behavior and uh, decides that this, this is it, enough is enough. On Christmas of 1963, Kemper goes with his father, his stepbrother, and his stepmother to Ed's grandparents. So it's Ed Sr.'s, Ed Ed II's mom and dad, for Christmas on their isolated 17-acre ranch in the mountains of Northfolk, California. Now, this ranch is on the top of the mountain. It's very secluded, very isolated, big big ranch on, on on a literal mountain in California. It's beautiful up there. On this Christmas from his grandparents, he gets a 22 caliber rifle. And after the, the Christmas shenanigans and the presents and whatnot are open, they just, the fa- his dad, the stepbrother, and the stepmother just leave Ed there and go home. So they wow. dump him off on his grandparents. <laughs> like, hey, you know, Merry Christmas, Mom and Dad. We got you, uh, look what we brought you. We brought you a six foot four, 160 pound teenage sociopath. Not good at Christmas. <laughs> and I know that it's hard. It's hard. People say it's hard to buy for my mom and dad. But really? <laughs> Just a pair of socks. Probably would have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Now, Ed's father had left him there on the ranch in North Fort, California, hoping that his mother, who was 67-year-old Maud Matilda Huey Kemper, and his father, 72-year-old Edmund Emil Kemper, could straighten little Ed out. Like I said, everybody in this story is named Ed. It's confusing and, and it's annoying, but literally the three main men in this story are named Ed, Emil Kemper. Now, like I said, his grandmother's name was Maud Matilda Huey Kemper. You were asking about Huey earlier on with his sister's middle name. That's where it came from. Oh, that's... Okay, I see. Okay. In February of 1964, a very drunk Clarnell, Ed's mother, makes a call to Ed's father who is now back at home with his uh, stepson and and new wife. And she calls in the middle of the night, very drunk, just to tell him, that Ed, he's a really funny bird. You're taking a risk by leaving them there with your parents, by leaving him there with your parents. You may be surprised to wake up one morning and learn that they have been killed. Uh, And I would say funny bird is how we describe the most elite killers in the 20th century. John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, all funny birds up. Yeah, sometimes you might throw a silly goose in there with that. But, yeah, most of the time, funny bird. Well, if you think about it, silly goose and funny bird mean the exact same thing. I just feel like one has more impact than the other. Hilarious poultry. That's another one. Kemper was enrolled at Sierra Joint Union High School in Tollhouse, California, while he was at his grandparents, and he made average grades. He kept mostly to himself at school. He had no friends and was mainly just a, a ghost in the hallways of that school, a really, really, really big ghost. So that's that's a good time. Little Ed hated living with his grandmother and grandfather. He claimed his grandfather, or I'm going to call, just to, just to keep this less confusing from here on out, we're going to call his grandfather, Ed Kemper Sr., Big Pappy. Okay. That's Big Pappy. Uh, and maybe Ed even called him that. I don't know. But 
let's call him Big Pappy, and then we'll call Ed's his grandma was old Gam actual dad, old Gam Gam. Okay, and then Ed's actual dad, we'll call him Jules. Jules. Okay, so we got Big Pappy, old Gam Gam, and Jules. And remember, Big Pappy is his yeah. grandpa. Old Gam Gam is his grandma. And he may yep. have called him that. We don't know. He might have. He might have. Jules might have called him that. Who knows? Well, Ed claimed that Big Pappy was senile and that old Gam Gam was a total overbearing witch that behaved exactly like his mother. Um, she emasculated him and his grandfather at every single turn. And that kind of makes sense because, well, we tend to, to marry people that, that are like our mothers. So uh, you're wondering how his father ended up with with Ed's mother in the first place. Um, maybe she possesses traits the same as his grandmother. Uh, you know, it's true. It's true. I can think of it's uncanny sometimes when I think about the similarities between my wife and my mother. Similar, similar styles of like communicating. Similar, uh, both they both we play we play. Um, yeah, Lincoln oh, logs damn. very similar. Um, like I said, she emasculated him and his grandfather at every turn. She probably oh gam gam probably made him pull his penis out and then preached to him about how small it was and said things like, ooh, old Gam Gam don't like that little thing. Come here and look, Big Pappy. And then Big Pappy would be like, ah, what year is it? Where'd I park my car? This isn't Walmart. Why is that young man got his wee-wee out? Okay, none of that happened. None of that happened. Admittedly, she didn't make him pull his, pull his penis out. Um, but apparently, Ed Kemper did have a little uh, a little a bitty tallywhacker. Really? So that's like an ultimate curse. Six foot nine and having, you know, I guess it's not important overall, but something worth noting. How sad to end up being six foot nine and having a four inch penis. I'd be angry too. Uh, hell, I'm getting angry thinking about it. God really is. God really is cruel. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. So I'm, I'm, I do not want to dwell on this. I don't even know why I'm asking this, but I'm wondering if maybe size is relative in this case, you know, like, like if we attached what he had on on you or I, or on like Muggsy Bowles, yeah, 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 that that we would seem well endowed, but because of his size, maybe in contrast, you know, I don't know, I don't know. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt here. Okay, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He had an average penis for a guy that's six foot nine, which is uh, okay. seventeen inches. Yes, yeah, see, I don't, yeah, that you, I, I'm lost on the stats on that but i'm gonna i'm gonna edge i'm gonna aim aim high i'm gonna aim high it's like a baby's arm holding an apple yeah yeah looks like a just a fleshy pringles can that's uh okay i think we've covered that been put on a five foot fella he'd have a kickstand there's a more script here that i'm seeing the only friend he had on the ranch Poor little Ed was his his family dog. Well, the family dog, his grandmother and grandpa's dog, and its name was Anka. Now, Ed did love Anka. He cared for Anka. Uh, odd because Ed usually just kills animals, but he liked this dog a lot, Named this dog named Anka. And Anka would join Ed out on his little hunting adventures with his twenty two rifle, but unfortunately, um, he's not very responsible with his twenty two rifle um, because it's taken from him by his grandmother, not long afterwards, because he just keeps killing all the songbirds around the house, as well as just about anything that moved around the, the, the ranch house. 
he was killing everything, domesticated animals, songbirds, um, everything, when his grandfather had really just given it to him to kill, like, gophers and squirrels, you know, prostitutes or whatever. A lot of those roaming the farm, <laughs> grazing. On the ranch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But eventually he talks his grandfather into letting him have it back um, after he promises that he won't shoot any more domesticated animals or songbirds. On May 17th, 1964, back in Helena, Montana, Ed's mother is getting married for the third time to a 42-year-old man by the name of Harold Magnus Strandberg. Now, Harold was an Army World War II veteran, and it seems that Clarnell was a bit of a tag chaser. I was going to say, there, there's a trend here that I'm seeing. Yeah, we call those ladies tag chasers up. Also... Is Helena is Helena near Helena? He- Helena, yeah, Helena, the, Helena, the Seventh Circle, Hel- near- Helena, Montana. Yeah. Okay. I made yeah, that joke earlier, know, and that yeah. word just kind of got stuck in my head. Helena, Helena, Montana. Mm. Yep. Okay. Helena. Yeah. Now, on the late summer afternoon of August twenty seventh, nineteen sixty four, Ed has been living with his grandparents for nine months at this point. He is fifteen years old. And right now, he is sitting at the kitchen table, staring awkwardly at his grandmother, Maud Kemper, while she pecks away at an old typewriter. She's writing a fictional adventure story for the magazine Boy's Life, titled, and she titled it, Fire in the Cannon. Big Pappy is out in town running errands at the post office and picking up groceries at the grocery store. So right now, it's just Ed and old Gam Gam, and they're both sitting at the table in the kitchen while she's pecking away at the typewriter, and Ed is staring awkwardly at her while she's trying to work. Now, old Gam Gam eventually notices that Ed is staring at her and snaps at him to cut it out. Ed angrily stands up, fetches his twenty-two rifle from the rack at the back of the kitchen, and lets her know that he's going out to shoot some rabbits and gophers with Anka, the family dog. As he's making his way out of the kitchen door, his grandmother yells, You better not be shooting the birds again. Uh, but as you probably guessed, he's only going to be shooting one old fucking bird today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, you know, I hate uh, this is uh, it, this thought can't is not escaping my brain as quickly as I th- wished it would. But I wish I, d- do we know if she finished the story fire? She did not. Cannon or she oh. did not. The last couple of 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 words were just topped out by her forehead. Um <laughs> <laughs> because and I'll tell you why because uh, tell me you better not be shooting the birds again is the last words that Clarnell ever spoke on this earth in, in physical form because upon hearing this Ed is now Ed hears this through the screen door right you know the old kitchen screen doors they got wire just to keep the they don't have glass yeah. on them. they got wire yep. just to keep the bugs from coming in so when mm-hmm. she says this, he is going out of the screen door, and it probably makes that quack. If anybody grew up in the country knows that very distinct sound of a screen door oh, slamming yeah. shut. He hears that through the screen door. Upon hearing this, he turns around on the porch. He's outside on the porch. He raises the rifle. Now, old Gam Gam's back is facing him. She doesn't know any of this is happening. She's still <laughs> tapping away at this old typewriter. He raises the rifle while standing in the porch and sights in on the back of old Gam Gam's grape through the screen door and pulls the trigger. 
And uh, the bullet flies through the screen door and hits her right in her old ass soft melon, and she slumps forward on the typewriter. He then pumps two more rounds into her back from the porch just to be certain that she can no longer uh, be capable of being grouchy. God, jeez. He then steps into the kitchen, pulls a carving knife from a drawer, and stabs old Gam Gam in the back three times with such veracity that it doubles the knife over. Just to make sure, I guess, that she doesn't um, worry about the birds anymore. <laughs> and uh, then he takes a towel, wraps her head in a towel to, to kind of control the all the blood from spilling out. Takes the body and dumps it in a back bedroom in the house. Then goes outside on the porch and waits for Big Pappy. Now, like I said, Big Pappy had been out getting groceries when he murdered old Gam Gam. But not long afterwards, he pulls up in his old beaten farm truck back from the grocery store. Kemper waves at him from the porch and old Pappy waves back with a smile on his face. Kemper then meets him at the truck and as old Pappy reaches into the back to grab the groceries from the back of the truck, he shoots him in the back of the head from 30 inches away, so almost point blank, killing Big Pappy instantly. He then drags Big Pappy's body to the garage, cleans the blood off himself with a water hose, and goes and sits on the porch to think for a moment. He briefly considers stripping his grandmother, old Gam Gam, and sexually assaulting her corpse, but then quickly shoes that idea out of his head after he decides that that's too perverted. I'm not some kind of sicko. Yeah. And I think you are because you had that thought in the first place, Ed. He let it go, though. He made the right choice. Yeah, he doesn't fight that off for too long, though. Oh. I mean, he does in this situation. It's in the next murders, you know, that... I would say the wheels fall off. Uh, Ed goes back to the garage, picks up his grandfather's body, and then takes it inside the house and stuffs it in the closet. Unsure of what to do next, he finds the phone and calls his mother. She tells him she'll contact the police immediately. After hanging up, she calls the Madera County Sheriff. He he does so too and lets them know that he's going to turn himself in. Now, when the police show up soon after, they discover Ed sitting very calmly on the porch in the rocking chair and they detain him without any trouble whatsoever. No confrontation, nothing like that. Now, while on the porch, the Madera County Sheriff asked Ed why. Ed famously responded with, I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill Grandma. He, then he told them that he had only killed his grandfather because he didn't want him to have to live without his wife, and he also didn't want him to be mad at him. So uh, as far as Ed concerned, this is euthanasia, really. Uh, the problem with euthanasia, Op, the, the flaw in this logic is that I think that for euthanasia to be okay, it needs to be consensual uh, euthanasia in most cases, and the and the patient is conscious and aware of the euthanasia. If the patient doesn't agree with the euthanasia, then it's not euthanasia. It's just it's just murder. And I hate arguing semantics, though. Speaking of beautiful girl names, I think euthanasia is a beautiful name. I'm surprised we don't see more girls, you know, named that. Also, like with the tre- uh, with the way things are trending right now. I think in the next 10 years, you'll see a lot of girls named Vaccine, you know. I mean, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Over, <laughs> over, the, next few, over the next few months, Ed is deemed a paranoid schizophrenic. Doctors believe he had killed his grandparents to avenge the rejection he felt from both his parents. So this is like a, this is teenage angst, you know. <laughs> This is this yeah. is rebellion. This. It was a lot like I guess like a more serious version of getting a tattoo on your lower back or sucking a drug dealer's dick behind a Kmart. 
Take that, Mom and Dad. This is 1960s uh, Death Cab for Cutie kind of, you know, lashing out. Yes. Emo. Just, this is the emo. Just Ed doesn't have any oh, yeah. chill. You know. Yeah, no chill. No chill. At 15 years old, he's sent to Atascadero State Mental Hospital, which is a maximum security prison for mentally ill convicts. In the hospital, Kemper is discovered to have an IQ of 145 at 16 years old. Now, anything over 140 indicates genius or near genius, and we all know IQ tests are bullshit, uh, so who really knows? But interviews with Ed later on do show a very affable, intuitive, uh, quick-witted, smooth talker, uh, and he also has an exceptional vocabulary. So there's there's something to that. There's there's something to it. Smart guy. He 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 was very intelligent. Whether IQ test or bullshit or not, there's no doubt about it. Anybody that ever spoke with him does agree that he was incredibly intelligent. Now, at the time, Atascadero Mental Hospital, uh, Atascadero Mental Hospital had 1,600 patients, many of which were murderers. Over 800 of them were rapists. And they only had a psychiatry staff of 10 or so. And because of this, and because of how smart Kemper was, and because of how sociable he was, and because of how friendly he was, he's eventually trained to administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. Really interesting. Yes. And Ed will use this to his advantage uh, because Ed begins using these tests to determine how to manipulate his own psychiatrists into believing he is getting better. Now, eventually, he gains the staff's trust over the next few years, and they allow him access to their psychiatric assessment devices. And because of this, he memorizes all of the responses necessary to show a healing young man that is no longer a danger to society for his own assessments and a guy that can be released. Because of his ability to memorize the correct responses to these questions, on December 18th, 1969, on his 21st birthday, after being in the mental hospital for a little over five years, Ed Kemper, our big Ed now, as he is, because he's now six foot nine and 290 pounds with a genius level IQ, is released on parole after being stamped with a big red, no longer a threat to society on his folder. So 21 years old on his 21st birthday, December 18th, 1969, he is released. That's, uh, I think there's something to be said there about uh, the, the, the mental professions that we have and, and that there's, a, you know, there's, there are two factions. There's, there's textbook, you know, clinical assessments of people, and then there's more real-life boots-on-the-ground assessments. And that's how you let serial killers go, and that's how it's been done in the past. And that is exactly what they did. Yeah. Yikes. All of his psychiatrist op recommended, every single one of them, recommended that he not be put with his mother, Clarnell. So the parole board decided that it'd be best that he go and live with his mother, Clarnell. Hmm. Ed is then returned to that old grouchy, miserable bitch after being released. She is once again divorced. Her marriage with Harold Strandberg hadn't worked out after she had verbally beaten him every day of his life until he could no longer stand it. Now, in 1970, after moving back in with his now single mother, the two of them moved to Santa Cruz, California to start over, and Clarnell then gets a job as the administration assistant at the University of California. 
Now, the only people that ever say anything positive about uh, Clornell are the people that she worked with at the University of California where she's putting on this facade to keep her job. She was apparently very good at her job. I think I think you see a lot of that. I, I think you see a lot of that, you know. These types of people, they, they have more than one personality. Yes. Now, another stipulation of Big Ed's parole required him to attend community college. He does exactly that and enrolls at Cabrillo Community College. Now, Santa Cruz, where he's now living at at the time, it's a small beach and surf town. It's a retirement town. Free and easy kind of feel. You know, people trying to live peacefully and happy. Kind of quiet. But at the time, it was beginning to be overrun by smelly hippies, probably wearing dirty, unwashed Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Simon and Garfunkel, Cat Stevens, and the mamas and papa shirts while their dicks rotted off because they created an STD epidemic all along the West Coast. But, uh... All that last part there is me just guessing. The town is being overrun by hippies. That's a that's a mouthful right there. <laughs> yes. Now, Clarnell, like I said, is recently divorced for the third time. And she blamed Ed for all of her many failed relationships, often telling him, Because of you, my murderous son, I haven't had sex with a man in five years. So, Ew. Yeah. Ed gets a job at the California Highway Department with dreams of eventually being a motorcycle cop. I don't know what the word for motorcycle cops are. Moto-popo or maybe dual-wheeled crime fighters. Um, I I don't know what the nomenclature for the police force is for the motorcycle cops, for the moto-popo. But he wanted to ride a motorcycle as the 5-0. That's what I'm getting at. But he's six foot nine and 300 pounds that would look like an elephant riding a chicken. Yeah, motorized chicken. Now, he also moves out on his own into a small apartment, but even then, Clarnell drops in on him unannounced all the time and berates him at any chance that she can get. So she misses berating him when he's living with her, so she's like, I wonder what Ed's doing. I'll go over there and fucking yap his ear off for two hours about how much of a piece of shit he is. (laughs) Uh. Soon after getting his own place, he finds out that he's too tall to join the police force, so uh, he just kind of becomes friends with all the local cops instead. He becomes a regular at a bar called the Jury Room, which was a popular cop's hangout spot, and eventually gets accepted into their thin blue line circle. Can a line be a circle? Thin blue line circle, where they all just consider him a cop groupie. So the cops just considered Ed a cop groupie, and they all, but they all liked him. They all, they all enjoyed having Ed around there at the bar. He drank with all the cops, became friends with all the cops, and that'll uh, work out to his advantage later on in the story in part two of Ed Kemper. But one of the cops there even gave Ed a little police academy trainee's badge and a little ID card so he could pretend to be a cop at home, I guess. And that had to look funny in his huge flesh-colored banana fingers, that little ID card. (laughs) (laughs) I got this from the police. Uh Uh, It's at this time that Ed buys a motorcycle, and even more shortly after that, he wrecks it. Shortly after wrecking that motorcycle, he buys another mo- another motorcycle, and shortly after that, he wrecks it too. This time colliding with a woman in a car, uh, he does break his arm in the wreck and sues the woman. He wins the case in court and is rewarded an undisclosed cash settlement. With this cash settlement, he buys his now notorious, famous 1969 yellow Ford Galaxy 500 with a black hard top and black interior. And this is the vehicle, like I said, 
that will end up taking many young ladies on the final ride of their life, which we will begin to cover in part two of Ed Kemper. This has been quite a ride anyway. It has like. been, and, we, and we're just getting started off. That's why I wanted this to be a, a two-part a two part story, because there's so much here. So I'm just going to order a couple pizzas. Um, I brought a change of underwear, and uh, I've got my phone, some water. You're going to need it. So I'll just, I'll, okay, you're going to need I'll, it. Uh, so I'll see you here back here. Um, you just let me know if there's any updates on the story between here and then, and we'll get back together for... You better bring your hymns, because in the next episode, there's a lot of oral handling, um, oral Oof. sex with decapitated heads, and a lot of a lot of decapitated head play, as they call it on Pornhub. Wow, I don't know, don't know what that... Uh, but I do have my hymn book. Can you hear this? You really That's do. My He's really hitting the microphone with a little bitty bobble. And what? Are, and you know what these are, right? Tic tacs. No, those are my prayer peas. My next guess is going to be Percocets. No prayer peas. What, come in handy. What the hell is a prayer the, pea? You know. Now I genuinely do not. Take a handful prayer peas and you throw them on the ground, and that tells you how how many prayers to say and which way you're going to face for each prayer and you know based on the way the the pee is laying what which kind of a you know how intense the prayer is supposed to be look um, on the next episode at the end of the episode i'm going to it's at that point that i will i will cite all my sources for this and there are a lot of them um and it's very important to do that. But if you're looking for the sources, if you're wondering, hey, what book did he read or what web, everything, I, I will provide all of that information at the end of part two of Ed Kemper. And with that, that is the end. That is the end of Ed Kemper. We will see you in the next episode and in, in part two of the Ed Kemper story. Thank you for thank you for joining me, Al. You're welcome. I love you. Huh? What?